This is a recording from Reunions Weekend 2011, made possible by the University of Virginia's Office of Engagement. On June 3, 2011, Professor Stephen Mako explained how chemical analysis of hair can be used to identify a person's diet and explored the implications. I've been here 21 years. Um, other I teach oceanography to about 200 students. I teach upper-level geochemistry classes. I run an undergrad seminar. Uh, just uh, lots of different things. I'm a Hereford. For anybody who's Hereford, I'm a Hereford fellow. And so that means I get free lunches while I talk to the students. So there's a lot of fun things. And I want to thank you for coming back for our reunions. Uh, it's always fun to talk to the alums. And I don't know what attracted you to this particular talk, but I hope uh, you find some enjoyment. It's a, it's a very easygoing talk about geochemistry and forensics, and that's what we do. Uh, Althea uh, came and said, well, you are kind of a, a detective, and so that's what I'm going to tell you a little bit about. Because I use something, you're going to probably not remember, but I'm going to re refresh it. I use something called stable isotopes, and we use it for forensics. So it's a little bit like CSI on television. And um, we use this scientific technology to better understand pretty much anything on the Earth. And I'll tell you a little bit about some of the things we're using and the technology at the same time. Can you hear me okay? I can't hear you because I can hear the microphone, you know, so. Uh, to start off, I heard somebody say King Corn, and this is a film that, I don't, has anybody seen King Corn? Okay, one. This has been on PBS, it won a Peabody Award, and it's a, so why am I starting off to talk about this? Because this, there's a little bit of a punchline with this. It's a film about what we eat, how we farm, sustainable agriculture, and the two guys in the picture actually came here. Uh, their strong interest was that corn production is huge in the United States. The United States produces twice as much corn as anybody else in the world. Uh, and what do we do with it? And it turns out that that corn isn't the corn that's corn on the cob that you and I like. It's basically corn that's really high carbohydrate corn, very poor in protein, and, but we produce many, you know, that's 13 billion bushels of it. Uh, and like all the sweet corn, if you count up all of that, there's only about 250,000 acres of sweet corn produced, just for comparison, 100 million acres. And what do you do with it? It turns out that, well, if you produce something that much, you've got to do something with it. And what they do with it is they make, uh, they turn it into a food for cattle, uh, pigs, chickens, everything gets it. And it's a terrible food because it's low in nitrogen. Um, they turn it into high fructose corn syrup. So anybody here drinking a high fructose corn syrup? Ah, uh -huh, there you go. And and so we we and now that makes sugars really cheap, but potentially very unhealthy because we never developed our style of eating for high fructose corn syrup. And um, if you haven't read Michael Pollan's book, The Omnivores of Dilemma, I encourage you to, because he actually has, a friend of mine was ghostwriting this section on isotopes, and it's excellent. It's a, a very, but you'll, you'll know more about it than Michael Pollan. Um, high fructose corn syrups, number one sweetener, it didn't used to be, uh, you know, regular sugar cane was, and we consume about 80 pounds of it per person right now, and we're not adapted for it. There are implications that, uh, that's the reason that two-thirds of Americans are overweight, uh, there's a rise in type 2 diabetes across the United States. And uh, this is all coming from this farm subsidy for corn when we produce 100 million acres of corn. Uh, 
averaging more than 10 billion of subsidies. So you've got to think about that. So think about things that was from King Corn, and I probably have not made it nearly as funny. <laughs> but it is. It's, it's, there are some really very interesting things in the movie. But we use 70% of the antibiotics in the United States are used in agriculture. And so when you eat corn-fed pork, beef, chickens, eggs, you are, or even cheese, you are eating antibiotics that were fed to those animals. Uh, we, it requires kilograms of insecticides and herbicides per acre. Uh, that all flows down like the Mississippi River, goes into the Gulf of Mexico, and it causes dead zones. Really, no life can exist in those zones. It's the size of the state of New Jersey. Uh, I said type 2 diabetes. Uh, there's a higher fat content in the meats that are produced with corn because they're made out of carbohydrates. And we have lost the American farm as a result of this because it doesn't pay to have small farms anymore. So why did they come here? And they, so these guys are, they were from Princeton, or from Yale, and they came here because they were interested. They had heard this rumor that we had done analysis of diet, and I'll tell you a little bit about that, of using uh, stable isotopes. And by using that, they had hoped that I could give them insights into this agriculture of corn and how it influences American diet. And it turns out that the guys that were doing this, they are, they are and all of you, I would wager, are about 60% to 70% of your carbon has come from this agriculture of corn. And if you haven't, I want to run you, okay? <laughs> I'm serious. Or if anybody's a vegan, I'd like to run you too. Are you a vegan? I'll test it. Are you ready to be certified? <laughs> um, Diane, we were on Good Morning America. I ran Diane Sawyer, and she was very surprised to see how much corn was inside of her hair. Anyway, so these guys, I mean, it was her hair, you know, that's what we analyzed. And so that's what I'm going to tell you about, a little bit about us using this. Not related to king corn, but I'm hoping I'm whetting your appetite for the kinds of things, sustainable agriculture, that we've actually been involved with. Where we had started out and where they had heard about us, uh, if you go watch the Discovery Channel, there was a program called The Ultimate Guide to Mummies, because I was running mummy hair, and, and I'm going to tell you those stories today. Or if you had read Southern Living, you might have seen myself and my student. She's actually a vegan. We certified her time and time again. And she has a certificate, actually, on her wall. I will give it to you. And so, uh, and it wasn't my brownie recipe they were interested in. They wanted to know us and how we analyze for diet. So, this is about isotopes. Real quick refresher. Isotopes are the reason that the periodic weights in right here are not perfect units because there's a little bit of carbon-13 and carbon-12 inside of all the carbon that's in your body. You may think isotopes may be carbon-14. That's such a small amount and it's radioactive. These are stable. They will last billions of years and until neutrons and protons break down. And that's what we measure. We measure the small amounts of carbon-13, most of the carbon, 99.9%. Now, 98.9% is carbon-12, but there's a smidgen. And that smidgen, we measure very well on machines like this. There are $150,000 machines, which back in the days that I bought it was more than the price of a house in Charlottesville. And then it was like, well, three of these machines for the price, but now it's back to being one for roughly, <laughs> if you live in Charlottesville. Anyway, and so this is the, the type of machine. They're called mass spectrometers. 
And what we take is we take samples, we burn them at really high temperatures, about 1,000 degrees, and that turns them into gases, and then it goes over into the mass spectrometer, and then the mass spectrometer can tell us how much carbon-13 is in there. Okay, and you may say, well, what's good is that? Well, over the 50 years or so that isotopes have been kind of researched, uh, there's been a lot of analyses made on different things and great insights into the origins of, of uh, the carbon, nitrogen, sulfur uh, for not only diet, but uh, origins of oil, you know, great insights into that. Uh, what you need to know is first, you'll see these crazy little squiggle deltas, 13C, that's the isotope value. And all of this is really meaningless because the, I mean, everybody likes to have secret words when they publish papers so that makes them sound like they know more than everybody else. And these are called deltas and per mil, but the truth is that they're ratios and ratios don't have any units. And so isotope people, we call ourselves isotopateers, uh, made up this unit because nobody likes to have dimensionless quantities. But what you kind of have to know, and it's gonna be hard to accept, but you're gonna see negative numbers and you may think that that violates concentrations if you have negative concentrations. But it's a relative abundance compared to a standard material. And so we have a standard material, it's called a PD belemnite, that's defined to be zero on this scale. And if you have less carbon-13 in your sample, your hair, uh, that's a negative number. So if the less means less, uh, means a negative number, more means a positive number down here. And you can see that the Earth pretty much has less carbon-13 in its materials than that standard uh, cephalopod from the Cretaceous. And it's just an arbitrary standard. It means so that I can send Amy some of my sample and she'll get the same number in her laboratory. So what you'll need to know then is that plants like wheat, they're called C3 plants for the biology types in the audience. Wheat has a number right around here at minus 25 or minus 27. And corn is a unique plant. It evolved about 50 million years ago when the times were dry and hot and it didn't want to release water back to the atmosphere and it became a C, and they're called C4 plants. They use a different type of metabolism. C3 plants have been around since the Precambrian, that, that enzyme. C4 plants evolved so they can be under drier conditions and they're going to be numbers around minus 15, okay? You might want to remember fish. The ocean is a little bit different. That's a number around minus 20. And that's all you need to know, okay? Minus 15, minus 20, minus 25. I'm going to tell you all about uh, nitrogen, too. Nitrogen is an important element. It has to do with nutrition, okay? That's the limiting nutrient for a lot of productivity on the face of the earth. That's why we put inorganic nitrogen on the fields of Kansas to grow corn, because it's that way we grow more corn because of adding nitrogen to it. The problem is all that nitrogen goes down the river and ends up in the Gulf of Mexico causing the dead zones. Well, for nitrogen, the standard is air. So you, around you, take some home with you. Uh, the air nitrogen has a, defined to be zero, and most of the earth has more nitrogen 15 in it than the air around you. So what you need to know is that on the land, the numbers for nitrogen end up around five. In the ocean, they end up around plus 12, plus 15. And it has to do with the processes of life in on the land versus the ocean. And so that's the whole, it's a different course. But that's what, that's what you kind of need to know. So the carbon numbers, plus five, nitrogen, and plus 15, plus 13. 
I'm going to tell you a little bit of a secret stuff because not many labs do this, but we also measure sulfur. Sulfur is in your bodies uh, in the form of a few amino acids, methionine, cysteine, and if you have really, who has really curly hair, she has a lot of sulfur in her hair, okay, because it causes uh, uh, cross bridges, because, and that's why you have curly hair. And sulfur has a bunch of stable isotopes. Uh, the people that were interested in sulfur originally were meteorite people, so this is the Canyon Diablo troilite, that's the uh, Arizona crater meteorite, and people defined that to be zero, and it turns out that the ocean has numbers around plus 20, so ocean foods look like that, and land foods look like this. So if we're analyzing diet, here's a third isotope that we're going to be looking at. All right, so you're almost done your lecture. The other side of it is that as you go up trophic levels, so here we are up here, carnivores, omnivores, here are primary producers. As you go up that trophic level, you have more nitrogen-15 and more carbon-13, okay? It's about three going this direction and about changes about one that direction. All right, so for the final exam, carbon, ocean's about minus 20, sulfur about 15, 18, 20, nitrogen 10 to 15, and it increases as you go up food chains. Land plants are going to have carbon. They're going to be the C3 plants like beans and wheat or corn, remember corn. Sulfur, about uh, five, and nitrogen is gonna be low, so just like sulfur, but it increases by about three. Both of them increase by about three as you go up the food cha. <laughs> um, consumers reflect the foods that they're eating. And so there are these increasing by about one per mil and three per mil in nitrogen and in sulfur you are what you eat. All right, so this is a real novel tool. I'm gonna to tell you a couple of small stories that don't have to do with diet of humans, but diets of other communities because that's me sitting inside the submersible, that's the Johnson Sea Link, about to dive down to about 500 meters below the surface where we're gonna capture animals where you can't watch them eat because you're down there only a couple hours, but you can bring them back up to the surface and analyze them and tell something about their diet. Uh, that's marine ecology, these deep sea communities. You can even go back into the past and look at bones, and we've published on dinosaur bones. I meant to bring a couple of dinosaur bones, but I brought hair samples of different people that I'm gonna tell you about. Uh, the Gulf of Mexico is a place where we dove down into the submarine, and we came across a lake at the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico. This isn't very far from the BP oil spill, by the way. And there's, there's a lot of oil in the Gulf of Mexico. And the fact that this oil well spewed out the biggest oil amount of oil and gas in the history is not surprising because there's a lot of oil there. And it's all leaking around this place called the Brine Pool where there's so much salt here that it forms a salt lake, like the Great Salt Lake, at the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico. And there we are landing on it because you can't dive into it. It's so dense. And here around it, living off the hydrocarbons, are mussels. They're out of the photic zone. What are they eating? They're eating bacteria that live in the lake, and they spit out methane. So that's what we discovered. Uh, then one a few years ago, we were diving there, and we came across this structure. Nobody had ever seen a structure like that at the bottom of the ocean. Turns out this is gas. Natural gas under such a high pressure low temperature that it forms a solid material. People have talked about harvesting this, bringing it back to land, and using it as a fuel 
for heating our homes and generating power. So they're called gas hydrates. So they're very exciting. They will also add the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, just like coal and, and oil. Um, so these, and then they also, when you take them out of that high pressure, they explode, which is, makes them not as good for fossil fuel and putting it in your car. But while we, we were there, we were going, we were realizing that we wanted to go back up to the surface. We'd been down there about four hours and the coffee was getting to us. And so as we were going up, the pilot said, I think I see moving. So it wasn't the scientist. I think I see something moving on the surface of it. And lo and behold, on the surface of this, in every one of those little scallops that you saw in the yellow and white areas, there were little worms, a creature nobody had ever seen before. What was it doing there? It didn't have eyes, didn't have teeth, and it was doing something on this frozen gas. What it was doing, it was eating bacteria that were living on the surface, like slime, like, a, like you've slipped on algal material when you've climbed rocks. Well, those, that's what they were doing. These worms were going around. They have hemoglobin, and nobody had ever seen them before. So we discovered a new form of life, and we got a cover of this journal called Naturwissenschaft, and that's been followed up this past uh, February with another one of the same type of communities at the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico where these worms are living in association with bacteria, and they're eating the bacteria living on methane. And so it's really kind of a cool system. You think about, well, if I were on another planet, what would I have to eat, you know, like, and well, methane, and what would be eating the methane? Well, bacteria. And then these guys would chow down on them. They, they require oxygen too. That's a little bit of a difference. So we've been using them to explore food chains in exotic locations. We also explored food chains of dolphins. We're working with the Beaufort Laboratory. We can look at the composition of dolphins and where they strand. Okay? When dolphins strand, they don't do it willingly a lot of the time. They often get tangled up in a, food, a, a net offshore. And the way they get taken out of the net is a fisherman will come along and slice off its fins, and it slides right out like a hot dog. That's illegal. The Marine Mammal Protection Act says you can't do that. Well, nobody knows where those dolphins come from when they come ashore. And so these were strandings, and there was big strandings this past year in, in North Carolina, Gulf of Mexico. And nobody knows where they come from, but using our data, we've been able to say that these guys come from Pamlico Sound, these guys are from uh, more coastal areas. Uh, some of them are from New Jersey. Uh, and these guys live in uh, some really in the far offshore, and they're resident in the offshore. So we can now certify that the guys coming ashore this time of year with this, we're actually interacting with the tuna fishery. And now there are NOAA and NIMS officers on board those tuna vessels saying, you can't slice off their fins. You've got to do these dolphin-safe practices or else you can't sell that to star kits. You know, you've all seen dolphin safe on the side of the tuna. That's what it means, that they're using practices where they don't kill dolphins. Anyway, so we can go, we've influenced policy using the stabilizer dopes. We've also gone to the deepest place in the, Gulf, in the Atlantic Ocean, 8,000 meters below the surface. It's called the Puerto Rican Trench. If you ever go to Puerto Rico, look north, and there is this drop-off of 8,000 meters right in front of you. It's the deepest place in the, Gulf, in the Atlantic Ocean. It might be the place where there will be an earthquake that a tsunami could be created that will take out Miami. We've never studied tsunami possibilities. There's been a little talk about it, but there is a potential for tsunamis because we have earthquakes. You know, Haiti was a good example, and those earthquakes could influence uh, sea level in some of our coastal cities. 
So we go and find organisms like this. They're, you know, people think that the deep ocean is dead. Well, it's like a, a desert. It's not really dead. But by analyzing these guys, we can show that it's not dead, and they will come from literally miles around if you give them some pieces of food. Okay, so we can analyze that. So these are the kinds of things we've been analyzing. We've also explored, if you're interested in origins of life, we've taken meteorites and looked at the organic compounds in it and shown that they come from outer space. There are amino acids in rocks from space that look like the amino acids in your bodies. And they predate, these are four and a half billion years old, they predate life on Earth by hundreds of millions of years. So the organic compounds that make up your body are in outer space. Anyway, that's the kind of thing this is talk about hair, okay? And so there's lots of people with different kinds of hair, different amounts of hair. And so why hair? Well, you know, you are what you eat. Nitrogen's plus three, plus one in carbon. Sulfur's the same as your diet. And so it's commonly seen, lots of anthropologists, archeologists. I got an email from a student in the art department literally yesterday saying she's excavating a cemetery in Sicily and it's so exciting, these are the Greek occupants, and she wanted to know something about their diet as opposed to the Sicilians. And so we're looking at it. We're going to do it. I'm not going to look at hair because they're skeletons. We might use teeth. Uh, so, but I use hair because nobody cares about hair. You'd give me some of your hair, wouldn't you? Yeah. And you will, right? You want to be tested. Uh, and so, and it can be well-preserved. And if I start you on a diet, it'll start showing up in your hair in about seven days. A lot of, lots known about hair because of male pattern baldness. You know, there's this great interest in how hair grows. It hasn't worked so far, but that's why it is. So it's, it's a, a keratin. It's continuously growing. You can imagine that years ago, I used to call this a tape recorder. And you probably know what a tape recorder is. You know, but you don't, right? <laughs> What's a tape recorder? <laughs> You've seen one at the Smithsonian, probably. <laughs> anyway, but it, it grows continuously, and and the content of the proteins in that hair are constantly telling the story of what you're eating. Okay? And that's what we're going to analyze for. Uh, hair is well preserved. These are hairs that go back literally 5,000 years in the uh, blue. That's uh, from a guy called Utsi the Iceman. He was, he's 5,000 years before present. And the red are from uh, actually Austria and uh, Italy. And so there was a great fight. He was hanging out in Austria. I'll tell you, I've got pictures of him. And so here's Utsi the Iceman. And you won't come across very many scientists uh, that actually have published their own samples of their own bodies. And, but the yellow is actually me. And so you can't get much more modern than me, uh, even though I, don't, I still use tape recorders. And so there are these. Uh, roughly the same amount of amino acids in hair that goes back 5,000 years. So the rule for me is, if you see a hair, it's a hair. Okay? And, and, it, and if it's not, it's been degraded, and who cares? Um, I started getting into analysis of diet of humans by challenging students in my class, uh, this isotope geochemistry class, that I could tell them something about their diet. And oh, this has actually been published in a journal on variability in isotope compositions. And remember, consumers are here, diets are down there. And these are UVA students, and they showed a lot of different varieties of diet. I called it the Kroger diet, because there's just so many different kinds of foods. And so what, what did it mean? And there was a, a 
journal called New Scientist that showed up one time at my doorstep. I had done a report at a meeting and there's been a press release. And they said, well, tell us about these people. And I said, well, here's this student. He's a pitcher for the University of Virginia baseball team. Very good pitcher. He was 100 mile an hour fastball. He got drafted by the St. Louis Cardinals. He gave me his autograph, you know, draft pictures. I figured my fortune was made when he'd make it, but he never got his fastball under control. And he became a teacher. So he, and this, so, and it was, so he's up here at a top carnivore. He ate hamburgers three meals a day. His parents verified that. Uh, this, these are people that were vegetarians. Vegetarians are, in some cases, pseudo-carnivores. Because if, if you eat things that are really meat products, like cheese, or you're really a, a higher trophic level. Uh, this person was a fish lover. There's a lot more nitrogen-15 in the ocean. Remember, that's a number that's like 15. So we saw those distributions. These are the kind of the boring, homogenous diets of everybody else, except for this student down here. She said she was a vegan. And so we took her aside and said, that's not a number for a vegan. And so we took her aside, you know, put the spotlights on her, and, and took out <laughs> spaghetti and beat her with some spaghetti. And she finally, I give up. I do like Virginia ham. <laughs> and so she never got the certificate. But so they, they, they had this story. So this was from these scientists about UVA students. Shortly after that, I got a call from the Wilton House. And are any of you, some, most some of you have to be from Virginia. You're not all from Bury. Any Richmond, Richmond people? Ever been to the Wilton House? You gotta go. I mean, in Charlottesville, we love Monticello, okay? And Monticello's okay. But Wilton House, you could walk up the stairs. This used, it was transported up the James River. And the Wilton House was the house, not of the Wilton family, it's on Wilton Street in, uh, in Richmond. And it was all the Harrison family. You know, this was the aristocracy of the United States. They had this house. And when you go into it, it's like it's alive. You can go behind a door. You see a cradle. You expect a baby to be in the cradle. It's really a fabulous house. Anyway, so they called me up and they said, you know, it's the anniversary of George Washington's death. Um, we've heard that you do isotope analysis of and tell us diet. Can you tell us about George Washington? Well, they gave me a sample. I have a little bit left if you want to actually see what George, I can pass these around, right? That's okay. So George Washington, you've got to look hard. There's a little arrow down at the bottom, okay? And you can see it. And they said, we've got George Washington's here. Tell us something about his diet. And so I went down there and the curator's hand shook as she cut George Washington's hair for the first time in centuries. And so I analyzed it. Well, you never say no to a thing like that, right? Even if I couldn't tell him something. Yeah, is it? Uh-oh. The hair, right? Well, the hair's here. I don't think that's, no, this, you know? Uh, no, I think that's plastic right there. The hair, the hair is right there, okay? But it might be. Okay, I think it's okay. We'll retape it. And so I analyzed the hair. And that's what it looks like. What's being passed around is the little signature. The, the picture was my edition. And there was just this really small section. Yes? Was that taken from after he died and uh, had been in the lead coffin or uh, while he was alive? It was taken not after he was buried. There's a lot of really cool history that, that has to do with Washington's death because, you know, he didn't have his own children. He had children via his wife's first marriage. And the daughter in that family actually was giving out samples of hair. And because during when somebody dies, it was very much a custom to have funerary hair. And you would wear it around in little lockets or earrings. And so there's lots of funerary hair around. Funerary, am I saying it right? 
And so there's a lot of that around. And they were giving out samples of George Washington's hair as a, at the time, because there was, it was great emotion at the time of his death. Anyway, um, so we got the sample of hair. What do you do with it? Who do you compare it against? I had my Virginians, okay, my students, my Kroger diet. Of course, they didn't have Kroger back then. And so where did he fit? And he fit kind of in the middle. So here's the hamburger, carnivore, fish eater, vegetarians, possible vegan. She should have been there. And so he was kind of in the middle. And so uh, Wilton House said, well, what does that mean? You know, I said, well, he wasn't this carnivore and he wasn't a vegan. He, and he wasn't, you know, a fish lover, but he's kind of in the middle. They went, yes. And they said, well, think of it this way. He was a centrist in his feeding, a perfect father for the country. And that's what they put up on their sign. <laughs> so, but, I mean, actually, it's been very interesting because back then they didn't have this artificial processing of nitrogen to make nitrogen fertilizers. And so there was more animal waste nitrogen getting into his foods. And so it's a really great comparison for me with that because today, if he had eaten the same diet, he'd be right down here. The animal waste has its own signature. So there's a dilemma whenever we do this kind of thing about calibrating it. You know, how do you get volunteers to say, I'm going to eat one thing and get calibrated? Like, would you eat tuna fish? three meals a day, 14 days in a row, so it starts to show up in your hair? For you? Yes. <laughs> I've had students volunteer there. Mercury levels are another story, but it's very much like it. Utsi had uh, metals in his, uh, in his hair. If I eat this tuna for you, will I be eating clean tuna or will I be eating mercury tuna? Um, probably mercury contaminated tuna. <laughs> You'll pass them. Okay. Well, we, so we, we would like to know, like sulfur isotopes, when somebody eats tuna fish, you start to see the sulfur isotopes of the ocean show up in the hair. It'd be kind of neat to calibrate. But it's very difficult to get, you know, you are very accommodating, except for the mercury. <laughs> and so you need to have volunteers. And volunteers, you know, uh, sometimes people, I said for the, the thing that I'm doing with Sicily, we've got bones. People don't usually like to give you bones. You know, and so or teeth, you know. I actually heard, somebody told me, there's a program called Bones on television that they use stable isotopes. This is a recent episode. I didn't see it. Uh, I actually saw the rerun on, on, you know, on streaming video. And they actually say, if we pull out one of your wisdom teeth, we can tell where you came from. Did you see that program? No? You saw it? So that's this is it. This is all about the stable isotopes. Uh, it's nice to know that the, you know, it's now in the public um, using stabilizers. So you need to have volunteers to do this. And it's very difficult to get volunteers that would eat that. You know, you'd probably get bored after a week of tuna fish. That's all you could eat. You couldn't eat anything else. So you need volunteers. And so where do you get the volunteers? Ah. <laughs> and actually, this is my cat. She's 21 years old, and so this was taken when she was much younger, Siamese. Her name's not Meg, and she's supposed to be eating fish pretty much three meals a day. It wasn't tuna fish. These are a couple of cats from Oklahoma, my best collaborator, and they're supposed to be eating just tuna fish. Tuna fish is plus 20. Fish from the ocean is 20. Are they not doing it? Something's wrong. So I, ran, I looked at my cat, and I said, ah, nine lives, okay, 12. That's supposed to be 20 if it's from the ocean. And I hope I put this back in. Nope, I didn't. If you read the label of nine lives, ocean whitefish, you'll see that the first component does say ocean whitefish. 
but then it's followed by poultry byproducts, beef byproducts, you know, it goes through this whole list. And it really comes out that only a small part of the ocean whitefish, maybe 50%, maybe uh, is probably from the ocean. You know, most of it's not from the ocean. They don't list melamine on the side, though. That's, that's a good thing. And so I call up my friend in Oklahoma and I said, something's going on with your cats because here are your cats. They're a little bit more sulfur, they're closer, but they're still not ocean. So I said, what's going on with them? He said, they eat tuna fish. Send me the tuna fish. Look at that, tuna fish. It's very close to 20. Tuna does come from the ocean. Actually, I tell that as a side tongue in cheek because there's a big movement now about buy local, eat local. And one time I was going home, there's a little store up by the corner uh, up on Barracks Road, that out front they always have fresh shrimp, you know, best steaks, you know, for sale. And they sell. One day they had fresh local tuna fish. And I thought that was great, Charlottesville, you know. <laughs> and they had, I went up and asked them if they would put it back up when I had my camera and they wouldn't put it back up. But tuna fish does come from the ocean. Why don't these guys look like that? I, I went back to my friend and I said, okay, tuna fish, your tuna fish does come from the ocean, even in Oklahoma. And, and so, What's going on? He says, he said, maybe it doesn't work. I said, your cats, something's going on with your cats. They're getting food from somewhere else. And he said, they're declawed. They don't go out ever. I said, they're sneaking out at night. You know, they're getting food from somewhere. I said, is there any other food? He said, well, we, we get Iams dry food, but they don't like it at all. So he said, send me Iams. And IAMS is 1.7. And so here it is. That, like, if you average those two numbers, okay, about 50% of their diet was actually coming from IAMS. And he didn't realize it. So he probably thought it was just disappearing, you know, vaporizing. You know, he's a geologist. So anyway, so it kind of didn't work, but it did work. And so you can get calibrations. I, I have another story, but I didn't put it in because I wanted to leave more time for questions. But the, another story was that one of the students in our department was going out to Pacific Islands. And when he was going out there, I said, you know, I have hair from the Pacific Islands from the 1880s. And there was an anthropologist that went there and collected samples of hair. And indeed, those hairs are like plus 20. They're very close to being plus 20. And so I said, if you go out there, go up to somebody and ask them for some hair because you can bring it back and I will analyze it and see if it stayed the same from the 1800s. I mean, I mean, you were pretty accommodating. Would you think much if I came up and said, can I have some of your hair? Probably you'd look at me kind of, people get arrested for that, you know? And, and so he, he came, he found three willing individuals and they got brought back the hair and they didn't look anything like. Their sulfur numbers didn't look like the ocean anymore. Now the Pacific Islands he was visiting were all islands that were uh, midway, you know, islands that are now heavily influenced by American air bases. And what do they have at American air bases? Spam. <laughs> Corn-fed pork, okay? And it's become a favorite, you know, the favorite foods are out of the commissaries. And so the, these, the, these people that were fishermen 100 years ago or 130 years ago, are now all being mostly uh, terrestrial foods from that's being packed in. It's kind of interesting. So we can look at modern and ancient diets, because I want to talk about a little bit more about ancient stuff too. My first ancient story. Uh, there's a coast of, of Chile, okay, and there's a place up here called Arica, and the coast of Chile has the Atacama Desert. There are stories that suggest that the Atacama Desert hasn't seen rain in a thousand years. 
okay? And so these people came there, and they, they were farmers back in, in the far distant part of the mountains where they would depend on fog and a and little bit of water. And then there were coastal people, but the coastal people were able to harvest the ocean incredible amounts. Well, people didn't know much about these until they started to build up the cities along the coast. And when they built up the cities, they came across burials. Well, if you put a body in a desert that doesn't have any rain in it for a thousand years, it gets dried out and it kind of hangs around. And they noticed that when the people lived there, that, that the people that they were leaving in the desert, and this is the oldest mummies on the face of the earth are from these regions of the world, okay? And I had a collaborator who wrote to me about this and he said, you know, did you see these mummies? And I said, well, that's kind of interesting. These, that they started out mummifying babies and their unusual mummification that they took the, uh, the corpse and they peeled off the skin and they removed the flesh. They might have eaten it. Okay, that's very, lots of custom, you know, and so that's, that's the study. And then they would replace the flesh with reeds and sticks and then peel the skin back on and then coat it with manganese dioxide. So these would be the mummies. And some of them go back like 10,000 years, much older. These people were mummifying thousands of years before the Egyptians. They stopped mummifying about the time of Tutankhamun to give you a perspective of that part of the world. So I saw this pictures of this from my friend, and my first reaction was hair. <laughs> and so there was incredible amounts of hair, and so we could tell something about the people living on the coast, the people living inland. This is a 16-year-old boy, and incredible amounts of hair that nobody cares. You know, they, sure, you know, if you said, can I have a tooth from one of your mummies? No way, you know. But a hair, no, they don't really care because, uh, you know, there's a lot of hair. So we also had samples of uh, plants that were buried with them. Corn, okay, corn is this weird plant. Remember I said it's gonna be about plus 10 or plus 15. There it is. Uh, the yakina, that's a tuber, it's a C3 plant. That's like minus 25. So look at that, the signals are very much like today. Even though they're thousands of years old, the signals are preserved in the, in the foods. Uh, the fish, I said they were going to be like around minus 20, and indeed they are. And so that's also true for the sulfur signals. Nitrogen signals, we actually have a really cool story developing that we're starting to think that we can use the, these numbers to tell us how much precipitation a location has. We're, it's exploring the world. It has to do with climate change. So I'm not going to talk about that, but if you think about sulfur, that these guys are heavy from the ocean. They have a lot of sul uh, sulfur-34. These guys are terrestrial. Here is a C4. Uh, plant, these are ocean, and there's a C3 plant. The signals are there. So what we can do is we can put them on a chart and say here's the wheats and the beans and the yakinas, and here's the maize, and here's the ocean foods, and if uh, people eat those, they should lie somewhere in those triangles, and we can figure out the percentages. Well, everybody lay outside of the field which is kind of weird. But then I told you a secret. Who knows the secret? What happens to trophic levels? You increase by three in nitrogen and you increase by one. And so if you move this triangle three and one up, there it is. And so these guys were the fishermen and they were 90%. What's for dinner tonight? Fish. And so they were 90 to 80 to 90% of their diet came from the ocean. And 
from those were the guys at Arica. They were called the Chincharo, the fishing basket people. Then we went inland up the valley and we came across these people. Well, these people were farmers and so here is the farm foods okay, that they had. These were the animals eating the farm foods and there they are another level up because they're eating the animals. And so they were the farmers mostly eating corn-fed llamas, those kinds of foods, except for this one. That one point was kind of up toward the fishermen and it was kind of this mystery. So we turned to this new isotope I'd been playing around with, sulfur isotopes, and I said, let's look at that one individual. Well, I looked at the other site. These are called uh, the, you know, Camarones. Camarones this means uh, shrimp, Maderas anko, and those were all the, the, the fishing people, and they had numbers close to the plus 20, you know, plus 15, so they were pretty good. And the farmers were down there. They're a little bit more enriched in sulfur 34 than I like, but they're still pretty close to being sulfur. What about that one individual that looked like in the carbon and nitrogen that it didn't fit the farmers. And in fact, that one individual fit that population of fishermen. So I go back to the anthropologist that studied this site and I said, here's an individual that looks like these guys, but actually was a farmer. His body was, or her body, I don't know, was, was found, I mean, a lot of mummies we never know, okay? Uh, and it was found near uh, these guys in the same burials. So what was going on? And the, far, the, the anthropologists said they thought that was exciting because that says these people had to interact with those people. Even though they lived far away, they were, this was a person that was one of these and got buried with them as a farmer. And that was the, the diet of that individual. And what was it? Was it a marriage? You know, well, you know, this is the story the anthropologists like to tell those stories. Was it a, a captive in a war? You know? Or was it a fish salesman coming into town and died? You know, so, but those are the kinds of stories that you can tell once you have the very interesting data. September 19, 1991, as uh, hikers going across the Alps, the Uts Alps, discovered a body. And the body, it looked like they would, people thought it was a murder victim. And then they transported it over to uh, into Austria. It was lying like right on the line. And so the Austrians were there and they transported it back. And it turns out that along with the body, there were lots of other things. There was a grass cape. Uh, there was a quiver. The quiver had arrows in it, but the arrows weren't finished. None of the arrows were finished. So you couldn't hunt with them. Uh, there was a bow. The bow was not finished. Okay, so you couldn't use it. There was an axe. In fact, the axe was the clue because the axe was uh, uh, Neolithic. Uh, it was five th roughly 5,000 years uh, be uh, ago. And that's what determined that it wasn't a recent murder victim, although people have played this up that you know, it was a murder. Uh, and uh, who cares? You know, it, was a, it was a dead person from 5,000 years ago. Uh, and inside this grass cape, there was a little bag that had like magic mushroom stuff in it. This was medicinal stuff. Some people have said that you know, he was some kind of priest or shaman, uh, maybe. Uh, other people say he was a, a, a sheep herder. But there he is right there. So very close to Switzerland, but I think it's Austria in Italy. His body is now in Italy. Now, the middle of the night, they had sent vans, refrigerated vans, to transport him back. There were riots, you know, we, trying to block the vans, taking the Austrian Iceman back out and, out and back to Italy. And, but he is now in Italy. Um, 
So uh, I had a friend in Austria who said, you know, what could you tell us about Utsi? And I said, oh, a lot, okay? You always say, uh, you, if you said, oh, I don't think very much, you don't get the samples. And, and so we looked at people, that we had, you know, had another person look at his teeth and there was this grinding of the teeth like there were seeds. Very common is that you, if you ate seeds, you might put a little sand in your mouth and the sand helps you grind the seeds up. It grinds your teeth down too, that's what, you know, it's bad news for your teeth. But, uh, and so there was this wear that looked like he might have had uh, teeth that were grinding up seeds of some sort. Uh, the sample of hair, didn't, original one I had, didn't look like this at all. It was only like this one centimeter. I actually flew overnight to Austria at this guy's expense. He gave me the sample and he said, here, carry it home. I was like, it was kind of crazy uh, to do it, but he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't send it FedEx. He said, this is too precious. Uh, we ran that sample and then later on I ended up getting a, like an eight centimeter sample of hair. And Along with that, we got some of the grass that was part of this magic mushroom. So that was the plant of the day. There was a goat skin. Uh, that would be a herbivore of the day. And there's the Iceman. Well, isotopically, uh, that was the isotope compositions. And this looks like grasses of today. The Iceman looks like vegans of today. You better come up to be a seven right there. There would be seven. The goat doesn't look like an herbivore exactly, but the goat eats plants that have a weird nitrogen isotope composition called clover, okay? And clover is a nitrogen fixing plant. So the goat has a mixed diet, so that's not surprising that it's not, it's not three between the grass and the goat. Notice that, it's only two. So there's a good scientific explanation, but the ice man is one, two, three from the grass. The indication was on that sample of hair that I had that the ice man was a vegan. We didn't want to say that in the paper because we had only a centimeter of hair. Your hair grows about a centimeter a month, so we had a month's worth of diet. And so it's hard to say, but at the time that sample grew, he was essentially an herbivore. Um, we compared him with herbivores from Europe because vegans from Europe look different than vegans from North America because you may not like to hear this, but even a vegan in North America is heavily influenced by corn. Uh, if you use ketchup, you're eating corn syrup in your ketchup. There's corns in everything, okay? You just read a few labels and you'll be shocked. My cat food has corn in it. And so the Iceman was identical with this vegan from Europe. These are vegetarians from Europe, so they have more animal products, even though they're vegetarians. And so it kind of fit. It was just kind of surprising that vegans look just like the Iceman in that sample. We ran, so there was a little bit of a controversy. You know, people, anthropologists in Europe said, no, the Iceman can't be, he was a hunter, you know? And so we didn't look at, uh, so we ran other samples later on. And in fact, there were some samples. So here is where this piece of sample would fit really well with him being a vegan. And this part of the sample says he's more omnivorous. So in fact, on a 5,000 year old human, we were telling that there was seasonality in his diet over the course of eight months or so. So, you know, whether this was, you know, in the summertime, he was eating the vegetables that were available, and here's all the dried meats that were available in the wintertime, maybe. So it's, a, it's an interesting perspective on somebody who lived 5,000 years ago, and how else could you tell that, you know? So, one, roughly one last story, okay? Uh, one long last story. We've been also looking at people called the moche, okay? Uh, the moche lived, they didn't, never called themselves the moche, 
Uh, they lived in a place that where there's today there's a river called the Moche River. There's another river called the Lambayaki. And they lived, here's where they lived. And nobody really knew much about them until the late 80s. And there were things starting to show up in the markets of Peru, of Peru that were from, there were artifacts uh, from these areas. And then there were some explorers that went out there and they discovered there were pyramids buried out there and along the coast of Peru. Uh, the conquistadors tried to erode the pyramids by rediverting rivers. And because what were in the pyramids, just like Egypt, they were going to be loaded with gold, you know, and, and so they, but they never found anything of consequence. But they did find burials inside the pyramids. And who were in the pyramids? Well, it was like the Wilton House. These were the aristocracy of the time. They would get buried. And I have a friend, he's uh, John Verarno at the Tulane University, who contacted me about this, because he said, you know these Moche people, and uh, that's everybody calls them that, they were kind of strange. Uh, like these are the kinds of artifacts that are showing up in the market, and it's your life, not your typical child's plaything. You know, here's a knife and here's a head, and you know something has. You know, they were kind of terrible people, and by this one's called the decapitator, in fact. And he said, and there's another. You know, we've got all these bones out inside the market, inside the areas around the squares around the pyramids, and these bones are kind of unusual. This is John, and because not only you know, like their skeletons that are not being very careful burials, they're kind of dumped out into the, the, into the plazas. But if you look along the bones, they have all these marks, like somebody's like counting stuff on it. Well, these are the kinds of marks that when you take a bone and you strip the flesh off of it, you're making marks. So the guys out in the middle here had these marks on them. Uh, often their wrists still had ropes around them. So they were prisoners. Uh, they're not like this, the very nice burials inside the pyramids. And some of them actually had weird impressions on their bones. So here's the marks on, this, on this, the vertebrae. But they had these kind of star-shaped things where they had been hit with a, like a bat to kill them. So they were obviously some kind of prisoner. And they were being sacrificed, perhaps, uh, by the moche. And so who were the sacrifices? Were they captives from wars? Were they moche? You know, you, your reward for being a good servant, you know, to the nation is that we're going to sacrifice you to get a good harvest. You know, who were these people? Well, some of the burials inside the pyramids, we had hair preserved. It's pretty dry. The burials underneath some of these bones had a little bit of hair. And so he sent me the hair. And the moche from inside the pyramids had numbers that like this. Here's the, it was kind of cool because these are the kinds of numbers that you would say are from corn-fed animals, just like the farmers down in, in Chile. And so those were the moche. Who, what about the, the captives? Well, the captives were up here. Quite different. They showed numbers that weren't like corn-fed animal meat at all. And I said, John, next time you go down to uh, the sites, go out to the coastal fishing villages, because these guys kind of look like maybe more marine signals. Go out to those coastal villages and see if you can get somebody to give you some hair, you know? And so he visited the coastal villages and, and the coastal people said, sure. And so there were, you know, this fishing family, there was the abuela and the nina, and so they got all the people, you know, the father, and they brought back the hair samples from them. And 
And I said, well, let's compare that fishing family with the captives. And they were identical with the captives. And so what the moche did, the aristocracy that were buried in the pyramids, they would occasionally go down to the fishing village and invite the people back for dinner. <laughs> Awful, I know. But that's, they were that uh, very close relationship. So the moche were not the, the, the captives at all. So you know, isotope compositions showed the very distinct differences. The mochi themselves didn't eat fish for some reason. We, we have people like that today, you know, that you don't eat ham. You know, you think about religious things. Uh, the captives resemble the signal of the coastal fishermen. This is influencing the anthropologist ideas about what was going on. What are we doing next? Uh, well, I'll tell you a couple of quick things. We're working with medicine. We're discovering that diet influences anemia. You know, the more meat you have, the less chance of having anemia. I can actually pick out a signal of breastfed babies versus those that are being supplemented with corn gruel. And so we have authentication from mothers that said, oh yeah, I'm, I'm nursing my baby. No, you're not. You know, you're feeding it the corn gruel because I can tell from the hair. Uh, we're also working with National Geographic right now on something called CSIV. Probably sometime in the next year you're going to see this. And it is, I don't know where they came up with the name. It's really awful. But, <laughs> but what we're doing is they've got people from around the world, uh, a swimmer, and we're going to tell stories about what they're eating and where they've been. There's, they're doing a lot of different kinds of tests. They're also looking at metals, you know. So, so those are where we're going next. But I couldn't end without telling you a little bit about a UVA student. And our favorite UVA student, maybe not your favorite UVA student, but one of my favorite UVA students is Edgar Allan Poe because he was expelled. And he, uh, and even, you know, could we say something about him? So a doctor from Hopkins came into town and said, you know, there are all these stories about Edgar Allan Poe and how he died. And is there something about his hair that maybe he was breathing the coal gases of Baltimore and that influenced his writing, you know? And so you think about it, yeah, when you, oxygen deprivation and all those kind of car carcinogens and the coal gas, maybe it was. Uh, so they analyzed metals too, and, and so I analyzed his hair. And as a control, we're always looking for controls in this business, was that he married his cousin who was 13 at the time, very common back in the early 1800s. Uh, Lavoisier married the, his partner's cousin, um, a partner's daughter, and she was 13 at the time. And, but she died of TB when she was 24. She didn't live for a long time in Baltimore, but there was a lot of her hair around, and we presumed that her diet was probably similar to Edgar's. And we got a hold of some of her hair. If you go, this is a picture of some of her hair. And I brought, oh, I didn't pass these around. So this is Edgar Allan Poe, and I think there is a sample not falling out. And this is fake, this is a picture, but underneath it you'll see some of Virginia, Virginia's hair, okay? So we have, and, and she was passionately in love with Edgar. They actually eloped, she lied on the wedding form that, that, that about her age, and uh, you know, here's a, you know, a love letter from her to Virginia Poe to Edgar Allan Poe. And so we analyzed her hair, Turns out there was no difference and between his hair and her hair. No evidence of coal gas. Conclusion, my point of conclusion, he's a natural, okay? 
And so it wasn't, it wasn't influenced by his diet or the, or the air he breathed. Anyway, so summary, I do stable isotopes, it's forensics. Uh, we do lots of different things with the forensics. I'm using this combination where we've developed at UVA sulfur isotopes. Carbon and nitrogen have been great insights into ancient humans, modern humans. I was telling Althea as I walked in that I got a call literally earlier this week from a doctor down in Texas, Amarillo, Texas, who wants to be, have this as part of his health fair. And so we're going to analyze a whole bunch of people down in Amarillo because it's really going to be neat because they're doing all the other health statistics on the people. Is anybody a doctor in here? Just out of curious. And so what we're, what we're doing is, you know, all of the glucose, whatever is in your, in your blood, those kinds of tests, there's going to be that. And we're going to be able to relate that to the isotope composition, hoping to see that if there's a carbon-13 signal from corn in the hair, that's going to be saying something about their diet. And what do we find by these other tests? So that's a, it's a real big possibility. I was, and, and there's a lot of really cool things in medicine, even in uh, cancer research, that I think there's a lot of possibilities for. Anyway, they're giving us insights into certain civilizations, maybe eventually into why civilizations collapsed or disappeared. You know, down in Mesoamerica, they disappear. Anyway, that's me. I'm happy to entertain questions. If you want to write me, Sam8F, you can find me under Environmental Sciences. You've got to be careful, though. Anybody from Charlottesville, you probably know the hook, and you might show up. That's supposed to be me, but I was told that I'd never wear an ascot. So, uh, you know, soil and green is corn syrup. You know, that would <laughs> Charlton Heston would be proud. Anyway, that would be a good place to stop, and I'll be entertaining questions. Okay, yes. Um, you talked about it being able to determine environmental factors from here. In more modern societies, can you use like pollution as well? There is a good possibility of that, okay? Um, pollutants in the form of mercury, okay? And, but uh, when I think of pollutants, there are the major ones are petroleum chemicals, PCBs, and what we do at the bulk level, this is a really quick and dirty test. Uh, we have also developed really sophisticated analysis so that I can look at a compound's isotope signal and tell where that compound came from. For example, we've gone to the Hudson River and looked at fish, and I, uh, we've looked at polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, or PCBs, in the river, and I can pinpoint them back. So it's point source pollution. So that possibility is a lot more sophisticated. It's a lot more detailed. Chemistry is much more difficult. This is quick and dirty. You know, for 10 bucks, I can give you an analysis. But it's free for you. <laughs> or anybody else? Yes? You, had, you talked about briefly your current projects, one of them being anemia and children in Africa. Yeah. And I recently started reading the China study. I don't know if you've heard of that book. Okay, so it's about um, cancer and how it's linked to animal protein. Uh -huh. So I didn't know if you had any thoughts on um, or what, what your project is about right now. Excuse me. Oh, the project itself is that we had some doctors, interns, go over to Africa. And what they're doing is evaluating nutrition in mothers and children. And so basically they were doing some blood analysis. And I said, well, while you're there, why don't you get the little hair? Babies in Africa with their kinky, really, it's like working with little tiny you know, squiggles of hair. So it's been very difficult measurements. But that's basically, it. if I can see a nitrogen signal that's saying that they're more animal foods are in their diet, 
that would tell me something about, or if they're being breastfed, I can, I can pick up those signals. So it's not like the animal protein, although I have to tell you that there has been really a tremendous amount of interest. We've been on public television in Korea, South Korea, and in Japan uh, for looking at the changing uh, East Asian diet. And you know, Korea and Japan import huge amounts of beef from China. And, it's as they, and so China is the number two producer of corn in the world. They produce, the United States produces about half, China produces about a quarter. And what they do is they feed it to animals and they export it to uh, Korea and Japan and other places. So, and there's this great concern about changing diet in those, uh, those countries and you know, the signals of isotopes are verifying that the population is no longer a fish-based uh, diet. It's, and so now, whether it's cancer, you know, and uh, there is, you know, colon cancer is on the rise. And is it the changing to meat, uh, high-fat uh, meat diets? It's a good possibility. There's a tremendous number of possibilities of what your base-level research will lead to. Well, that's, yeah. yeah how about uh, things like how long somebody should breastfeed? You know, we can pick that signal up, but working with the right medical field, we could uh, see how long, in fact, uh, they have gone back and used this in past studies on children that have died and seen at what point, you know, because in the bones you can pick up, well, this child was three years old, but it wasn't nursing. Or this child, you know, was older than that and was nursing. We can pick up those signals. So I don't know, and, but it's for the medical field to evaluate, is this a good thing to stay on nursing longer or shorter? In ancient times, nursing went on for much longer than it does today. I, thank you. Yeah. Um, going back to your graph about with the distribution for nitrogen where the officiator was sort of higher up on the nitrogen scale. Uh -huh. So if you eat a lot of marine plant life, for instance, would you be higher up on that? It, you could get around this, okay? okay? <laughs> if you were harvesting kelp and eating kelp cookies, yeah. you would be pretty low. Okay. But we don't, what, what fish do you eat? You know, you eat tuna, mm -hmm. you know, swordfish, you know, and so all those high trophic levels. And if you just think about it, here's the base. It's three per mil. Oh, it's, it's, and so you increase by three. Well, in the terrestrial world, that's grass, cow, us. In the marine field, so that's six. In the marine field, it's you start out with the marine plants, and they get eaten by copepods, and the copepods get eaten by small fish and then big fish, and those bigger fish get eaten by really big fish. And up in the high Arctic, which I've spent six months of my life, they get eaten by polar bears. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, this, and so I've actually measured the heaviest, the highest nitrogen 15 content of any animal life on the earth, and that's in polar bears from the Arctic. In fact, my fantasy isotope number would be that some of the Inuit feed polar bear meat to their dogs. Nobody wants <laughs> to eat polar bear meat. And so the hair from dogs eating polar bear meat would set a new record. So if you ever get up there, I want, I want hair. Yes. And one of the tests that the doctor is analyzing air for heavy metals. Anything else I should look for? I think that that's a field that you know we're we're really at the early stages of what are the causes of something like that. I mean, there are also 
like a lot of diseases, we are clueless about some of the causes. And so there's a fascinating idea like that. Is there a relationship? But this would be diet. But again, this is a fantasy metal, uh, medical project that I could take a drop of your blood, measure the compounds in your blood for the amino acids. And we have all these enzymes that cook up the amino acids and make them into different forms. And so, you know, as a doctor of the future measuring the isotopes, I can say, ah, the difference between your alanine and your glutamine is a little bit high today, you know, and so maybe those enzymes aren't working as good. So there are probably medical causes like that for diseases or conditions. Uh, the same doctor that gave me Utsi's hair, he's a pediatrician. He thinks that we could look for diabetes. And what would be fascinating, wouldn't it be fascinating to go back into an Egyptian's diet from 2,000 years ago? And you know the incidence of diabetes 2,000 years ago was not nearly as high as it is today. Wouldn't that be fascinating? So there's that potential. So it's exploration. It's finding the right people for somebody like me to work with. Okay, and... Do you develop a sense of what public policy ought to be on corn subsidies? There's, you mean personally? Well, I think it's a mistake. Oh, it's, there's no question. We produce so much corn. There, there are other foods that we could be producing that are healthier. You're paying for it. No, I mean, what, what, what did you say is a mistake? I didn't know. I, I'd say the corn subsidy, the billions of dollars of, of, that we put into the corn. I mean, what it's causing. And if you don't, you haven't seen King Corn, and if you have seen it, you should see a movie. I put it up there. It's called Big River. It's by the same people. It's about the nitrogen pollution going down. Uh, you should, these are both in the UVA library now. But uh, Big River is about the same guys, and they go down the Mississippi, and they're looking at nitrogen uh, in the Mississippi River and causing dead zones. Oh, yeah, those are the same guys. So, yeah, they were here. If you watch that king corn, it's right my office as they go, go, down, the, go down the hall. So um, my own feeling is that, you know, we've, we've put so much money in. It's a hidden subsidy for the hamburgers at McDonald's, which are loaded with fat. And, you know, they're not nearly as nutritious as grain-fed beef. Uh, pardon me? Grass-fed. Grass -fed. Well, well by, I, I, mean, I don't mean corn, but I mean whatever grass-fed beef or other types of grains that would come from grass grasses you could say I stand that's really what I meant and so but not corn as the grain and uh, it's not as healthy the animals don't grow as fat they don't grow as large as fast they don't need the antibiotics cows grown just on corn will die and so we have to pump antibiotics into their bodies in order to keep them alive so we can kill them so I think it's, you know and what do we do with the excess uh, corn, well, if we can't feed it to the cows, we turn it into fuel. And the idea of turning food into fuel really bothers me. So that's kind of my own. When you say <laughs> that McDonald's hamburgers aren't nearly as nutritious as before you finish your sentence, I'm thinking, is there any nutritional value in them to speak of? Obviously, there, there is, because there is, I mean, the meat is nutritious. I mean, you, you can certainly support your diet on that protein, but you, got, you have so, a lot more fats that are inside of it. I mean, protein's protein, you know. 
So is the Obama administration looking at this at all? Because she's the first lady's real big on the, what's it called, not the food, the food plate? So yeah. I've written a letter to the press secretary asking for uh, Mrs. Obama's hair and her kids' hair. <laughs> I'm, expect I'm expecting that. The university that. is now unlocked. <laughs> yes? Can you differentiate anything uh, between transgenic grains and, uh, um, and, uh, uh, and non-transgenic? You know, that, that's a, it's a great question. And, you know, we started writing letters to people in Kansas with, that are trying some of these. And uh, I, I haven't gotten a positive response about somebody who wants to give me those. But if you have contacts, I would, I would like to, that would be a nice project to do as an aside. So I, don't, I can't answer that question. But there could be differences. I mean, this is genes influence the bulk carbon and, you know, when we change the genes, are we changing the same thing that the, the C4 plants did 50 million years ago? They, they change their enzymes. Why not? It could be, you know, but I can't answer that question. But, but what would you hope to find out from doing the analysis? I assume what you want is samples from people who have eaten transgenic corn and, and some who haven't eaten it at all. Well, I think finding people who haven't eaten it, it'll be easier than finding people that, that have eaten it only. But you could do that. You could do it on a control study with, like, mice. Cats won't work. They don't like, except my cat likes sweet things. Well, you know, I, I read an article, and this was some guys in Canada said, cats really don't have a sweet tooth. And I have this picture I sent to them of my cat licking the top of my cinnamon roll. <laughs> it's true that he likes it. Oh, a question. Yes. Because you were talking about the ketchup and how it has the high fructose corn syrup and that ties back to the corn and yeah. the carbon. So if you don't eat a processed diet at all, so then where would you fall? You would be like Utsi the Iceman. Oh, okay. So I, I would guess, I mean, but you could get the corn signal still from eating sweet corn. Or, I mean, but if you eat processed foods, just about all processed yeah. foods have corn in it. It's just, I mean, even salt is dusted with cornstarch to keep it dry. <laughs> I mean, you don't realize it, but it, if you read the labels, and just, it's just kind of fun to read the labels because corn is in everything. It's not only corn syrup, but also the corn proteins are yeah. in there. And so it's this hidden. I mean, it's, it's cheap, but it's cheap at the cost. And you're talking billions of dollars of corn subsidies, and to what end? And virtually all of that now is, is transgenic. Yeah, that's true. Steve, one more question. Yes. One more question. What is transgenic? Well, it means that it's been genetically engineered uh, to, uh, for example, uh, resist uh, um, death from Roundup herbicide, there are various things. I mean, they, they genetically engineer things to resist viruses and also uh, to integrate <coughs> pesticide into the plant uh, as well. Bt, for example, in corn. They're, they're, yeah. Resistant to herbicides. And so there are actually some fights going on about somebody growing genetically manipulated corn here and some of it escapes over to the other farmer's field 
and they're doing the genetic test and they're actually, you can't grow the corn that is resistant to Roundup, you know. You're talking about the suit organic farmers have brought? That accidentally have introduced the, yeah. Right. Because the genes, the genes jump in pollination. Well, those suits are going two ways. The, the seed companies are suing people who have gotten seed by way of the wind because they want to sell it. They don't want it picked up. I just put it for email. Thank you for coming. Enjoy the rest Thank of you. alumni. Thank you.